What is up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. Today's guest is serial entrepreneur and author Jeff Wald, who wrote the book, The End of Jobs. Jeff, welcome into TMT Time. Um, it's great to be here at TMT Time with you, Evan. So let's get right into it. I just wanted you to give our listeners a brief background so they know who it is that they're listening to. Well, I mean, you know, the brief background would be that I have I started my career in finance, uh, started a few tech companies. The first one failed miserably, left me basically bankrupt. Uh, but, you know, entrepreneurial world is all about failure and picking yourself up and dusting yourself off. Uh, and so, you know, you licked your wound, I licked my wounds, restarted another company. We sold it eventually to Salesforce. My most recent startup is a company called Work Market, which is enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their freelancers. And we sold that to ADP. And after two and a half years, uh, wonderful years, on the senior leadership team of ADP, um, I am, you know, retired for a, a lack of a better term until uh, my non-competes are expired. And so, in that time, I wrote this book on the future of work, which is something we thought about and studied just nonstop uh, at work market. So ADP is a payroll company, which means you're working with HR. And is that how you sort of got onto the thread to lead to the book, The End of Jobs? Well, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say that ADP is most well known for its payroll, but it's yeah, actually I, the I largest. I knew you were going to correct me. What do they really do, Jeff? <laughs> they are the largest HR software company right. on the planet. And it's funny because, you know, when I sat there as an entrepreneur, there are many things that you're responsible for, you know, the vision, hiring the team, raising the money, sales and customers and all the other things. One of the things you're also responsible for is making sure you have an eye on the exit. And for most companies, that exit is an M&A exit, not an IPO. And so I had a list, Evan, of the 10 companies that I thought were going to buy work market at some point in our evolution. And I viewed it as a part of my job to make sure the heads of Corp Dev and Strat at those companies knew who I was, knew what work market was. ADP was not on that list. And so I thought they about it as just a payroll 10. company. Oh, they did not make the they top were 10. a payroll company. Oh, and you didn't see I them as thought a of them as just a payroll company. I didn't, I didn't really know. And so uh, when they came and you know came knocking, I, and they said, Hey, we'd love to talk to you about the future of work. We've heard about the stuff you're doing. I was like, um, who? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to talk because I'm always happy to talk. I love to hear myself talk. That's, um, how, that's how I convinced you to come on this podcast. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, they came knocking and they actually made an offer. We couldn't refuse. We still hired a banker and uh, we went through a process. And so I got to spend two and a half wonderful years on the senior leadership team um, at one of the largest, most well-run companies on the planet. So that now you're under non-compete with them and enjoying the, the retirement, wearing my favorite outfit, which I have on 95% of the time, which is the hoodie. Even when I'm not retired, though, as a tech guy, I, I am wearing the hoodie. Yeah. So. <laughs> so very Silicon Valley, even though I know you live in the city, True. hoodie all the time. So what are you doing now with respect to the book? I mean, the end of jobs, it came out pandemic time-ish uh, and the future of work, I think, you know, has changed probably already no in the last question. couple of years. How do no you, question. 
what are your thoughts on that? How, where do you think it's going? Where in the process of the transition that you identify in the book from the, I guess you called it the computerization of the, the newest industrial yeah. revolution, how mm -hmm. close are we to the next one uh, now? So the fourth industrial revolution, robots and AI. So for those that have not yet read the book, there were three industrial revolutions. We have gone through an industrial revolution, meaning a new technology or process and or process comes along with such massive productivity increases that it fundamentally alters the supply and demand balance between companies and workers. And so there is a big view afoot, and I, I'm in this camp, that the robots and AI represent the fourth industrial revolution, where we will fundamentally alter the balance of power, alter the supply and demand balance between companies and workers. And so it's, it's a great question, Evan, around you know, now that we're two years in to the pandemic and to the book being out, how have things mapped? And I would say this, the book was not about making specific prescriptive recommendations, right? I mean, I do make them and, you know, I will say that they, they're, they're mostly tracking, um, but the book was more about giving people a framework to think about the future of work. And the problem that comes about when a lot of people are out there in the public square talking about the future of work is they make unfounded and in some cases dangerous statements that often have zero percent chance of coming true. I would never say that any prediction I make has a hundred percent chance of coming through true, but I can walk you through the history, the data, the processes through which companies engage workers that lead me to my conclusions. And so that's what I try to do in the book is to set up this framework of let's look at the history of work. Let's look at how companies and workers and society reacted to those first three industrial revolutions. Let's look at the data trends and the data patterns that have persisted over 200 years of this modern notion of what we call a job. And then let's look at what CHROs, C-suite executives, are thinking about as they do their labor resource planning. And if we look at those three things, then we have a substantive chance of having a meaningful and thoughtful prediction on the future of work. And so when the pandemic started to break, you know, and it was a horrific time for all of us, I, I got a call from the publisher saying, well, do you wanna pull the book back and change a few chapters? And having spent seven years writing the book, <laughs> You're like, God, I was no. like, Oh my God, no, I am never touching that thing again. Like yeah. we went to content lock, we're staying at content lock. Like, I don't care what happens, but the most important reason I didn't care was not because I was selfish. And I didn't want to spend the time working on the book. It's because the frameworks persist regardless so you, of what's happening. You thought the data, so just by way of example, uh, well, do you think they teach the industrial revolutions anymore in school? Do you think that people that would listen to this podcast, if you said, what are the three industrial revolutions? Do you think they could name any of them? No, I think they would say the industrial revolution. The industrial, I was just about, that's right. The I definitive agree. article would be used as in there, yeah. as if there was one. And the first one had the biggest impact. The first one we were moving from hand power to machine power. Machine power, yep. Right, and that has the greatest force productivity increaser. You know, you're talking about a thousand times more efficient to use a weaving loom and a spinning jenny than doing it by hand. And so when you move from the second, which is putting power into the machines, electrification, 
That's the machine running as opposed to a hand crank, the machine running on electricity. That gives you a huge increase in power, but not as much as hand to machine. And then the third, computerization and the creation of a digital world. Again, huge force productivity multiplier, but not as much as the first. So if we said industrial revolution, people would say, oh yeah, England and textiles, because that Dungeon, is certainly still talking. That about. one, I think that's yep. a good probably here. Hundred so percent. The what I have kids that are school age, and we get told all the time that oh, the jobs that are there now are not going to be the jobs of the future. You need to learn how to code and do this. What does the data tell us about the veracity of statements like that? Well, here's the first thing that I would say about the data. There are a few almost uninterrupted trends over the 200 year history of work. It's really been about 200 years that we have this notion of a job where we go to somebody else because there are companies and things like that. One is there are ever more jobs. In almost every single year of the last 200 years, more jobs are created. Point number one. Point number two, the number of hours worked over the last 200 years has decreased. People used to work 3000 hours uh, a year. And everyone, if asked, hey, how many hours does this person work? They reflexively say 2,000. Well, you're right? talking, 40. so I'm a lawyer at a big law firm. So unfortunately, <laughs> I'm in a hue to the larger number, but hopefully our listeners are closer down to the below number. Well, the actual number for Americans um, is about 1,760 hours per year that they work. So again, almost an uninterrupted trend of a decline in the number of hours almost an uninterrupted trend in an increase in the number of jobs. And the third absolutely persistent data set is an increase in the standard of living. Right? Those three things have happened, which leads to this wonderful quote, and I wish I could take credit for it, is that we used to, we, we tend to, as humans, we tend to romanticize about how work was, complain about how work is, and be incredibly fearful about how work is going to become, even though work has consistently become easier and more rewarding and more plentiful. But that is our human nature. So yeah, I'm guilty response, of all three of those things. We all are. But the data is the data, right? That it just doesn't hew to what actually happens. So look, is it possible that the robots and AI lead to technological unemployment? Is it possible that all jobs are technology-based jobs? It, it Look, Evan, it, it's possible, but it's just highly unlikely. Do I think that those jobs will grow greater than other jobs? No question, right? They have higher growth rates. There will be more of those jobs tomorrow than there were today. But will other jobs disappear? Some of them, sure, over the next 20 to 30 years. But people tend to over, this is now a Bill Gates quote, they tend to over-impact the, um, or over-emphasize the impact of a technology in the short term and under-impact its uh, impact over the long term. And so over the short term, and we talk about this a lot in the book, we talk about bank tellers, I talk about truckers, and we can talk through some of those examples if you'd like, but when new technologies come on board, people go, oh my God, all the jobs are gonna go. And that is never the case in the short term, and usually in the medium term. In the long term, sure.
some of these jobs, which are some people would say menial or mundane or mm-hmm. difficult physically, um, sure. humans just still doing things physically difficult that may be better done by processes or, you know, you call it AI, robots, whatever. Yeah. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book are coal miners. And people say, oh, you know, all the coal jobs have gone and people will blame environmental policy. People will blame trade policy. The reality is in 1950, we had 1 million coal miners in the United States. And today we have about 60,000, but we produce much more coal than we do, than we did in 1950. I mean, much, 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 much more coal. We just do it with more machines ripping coal from the grounds as opposed to humans. And that's that's not a bad thing. That's a uh, health and human safety positive. There is a kernel of truth, though, to the notion that humans now have to be more fluent with technology to be able to get the different jobs that are going to be out there, right? You would agree with that? I would say that almost that most jobs over time become technology jobs. And I don't know that there's anybody here that is not now fluid in a computer the way people just weren't 20 years ago and using their phones. I mean, that phone, that device, that is more computing power than was used to put a man on the moon, right? Like, and now everyone uses it very fluently in their pocket. And so, yes, every job will have a very strong technical component. It's also the great knowledge equalizer. You used to, you know, have to study all. I mean, I used to read the encyclopedia. I'm that old. Yeah. Uh, now you Google it and or Bing it, whatever company you would like to use, and find out the answer in 0.008 seconds. Yeah, I'm gonna guess most people are Googling it, but uh, you know, a lot yeah. of love for our friends at Microsoft. God bless them for keep trying there with the Bing. But uh, yeah. The world's right. information is at your fingertips. So one of the things, the things that I found interesting about the book is it made me think about, you know, there's there unions still exist, and yes. you still hear about unions. Most often, you hear about them around election season. Um, for the that's when I hear about them. Oh, the unions are backing this person. The unions don't back this person. Unions were formed in reaction to the growing disparity in power struggle between employees and companies, which is something you mm-hmm. hit big on in the book. Yeah. Um, what, what needs to happen now with the, the next revolution? Is it, a, is it unions to help equalize or put the, the lever, if you will, back towards the workers and away from the companies who are now growing all the more powerful vis-a-vis all, all their employees? So this goes back to our frameworks, right? We have this balance of power between companies and workers. And usually it's in balance. It's not in parity. They don't have equal power. Companies almost always have the preponderance of power. But in an industrial revolution where a new technology comes on board, a new process comes on board that massively increases productivity, meaning I need fewer workers, the balance of power shifts. And here's the thing about power balances. If they're out of balance for too long, the system reacts and it will bring them back into balance. Like nature abhors an imbalance. And so the things that workers can use to bring things back into balance are unions, regulation, and the social safety net. Those are the three things that identify. They're the counterbalancing forces. 
unions, and we can talk through union history as much as you'd like, but they've had their ups and downs. It is currently in a little bit of an upswing right now, but it still represents about less than 7% of the U.S. labor force. What's interesting this is that is the biggest upswing, I think, that in my lifetime, when you're hearing yeah. Starbucks and such, I, I think it hasn't shown up statistically yet. But the narrative of trying to unionize the Amazon plant in Alabama, the yeah. Starbucks that have unionized in upstate New York, those narratives play out as national news because those things haven't happened for so long. Statistically, it hasn't increased the percent of the labor force yet in May, but the number of union workers in the United States has actually remained pretty steady. It's just the labor force keeps growing. So as a percentage of the workforce that keeps declining. So, so, so. When we think about unions and how they may evolve in this fourth industrial revolution, I think about the fight for 15. So for those that don't know, the fight for 15 started, and that was a fight for a $15 an hour minimum wage known as a living wage in the parlance of the union movement or the parlance of the activist movement labor movement um, started, it was started by the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union out of Seattle by one of the great labor leaders, uh, David Rolfe. David and his team started the fight for 15, but it morphed, Evan. It morphed into a grassroots activist campaign that permeated all across the country, all types of jobs, people uniting in common cause, saying the power balance has gotten too out of whack. We are working harder and we are not making enough money. We want more of the economic pie. And you know what? It wasn't union driven. It was activist driven, using social media campaigns and obviously, you know, feet on the street. And they won. They won that fight. There are 17 different states now that are moving towards the $15 minimum wage, many, many more municipalities. It is now being discussed that is not going to pass in the near term at the federal level to just move the federal minimum wage up. The federal government has already imposed a $15 minimum wage on anyone that does business with it. A lot of people took that news to conflate it with an increase to the federal minimum wage, which is still $7.25 an hour. And so those types of things have led to a rebalancing of power. So whether it's the union movement as we traditionally knew it, and there are a host of problems with the union movement as it existed over time, or whether it's a new form of union or a new form of workers uniting in common cause, whatever it is that you're seeing in real time, those counterbalancing forces start to exert their power to say, this is enough, we don't like it. And we're gonna vote for politicians that want a higher minimum wage, we're going to put in place work stoppages. We're not going to work at places and especially in a tight labor market, that's super powerful. And so whether or not states are doing it or whatever, Amazon's done it, McDonald's has done it, Walmart has done it. These are some of the largest employers in the country. So we are already gotten to the de facto 15 with still a lot of work done before it's de jure in the law of the land. All right, so you think that the fight for 15, as you call it, is sort of the, the precursor or the like predictor on what it's going to take as we move forward into the future of work to well, here's, you know keep the balance somewhat in place here's the thing and here's why i didn't feel the need to pull the book back and rewrite the book i don't know man i don't know what form it will take that is an idea 
that I have. We have some data to support that idea, given what's happened with the fight for 15. But what I do know is that counterbalancing forces will rise and the system will get back to balance. Now, again, not parity, but balance. And right now it is out of balance because we're in the early stages of a change. What form it takes, I don't know. You know, there could be much more regulation. There are certainly changes to the social safety net that happened during the pandemic that have been pulled back. You know, the conversation around a um, universal basic income is out there. It was nowhere five years ago. Now it's a part of a lot of dialogues. I'm not saying I support it. No, but, but it's part of not major party platforms, but it's a, it's a thing that's discussed. Yeah. And so the point of the book is to say counterbalancing forces will rise because they always do. And that's the lesson we take from history, data, and how companies engage workers. So what form the union movement or movement of workers acting collective action happens, I don't know. But I know it will happen. Do, do you think the advent of communication technologies that make it much more easy for people to mm -hmm. organize and gather and espouse similar ideas will fast forward this? I think it is an incredibly important tool, not only in labor activism, but activism against repression and all kinds of other things. There are all kinds of ills of social media and we could spend hours talking yeah. about oh, and I how have. terrible. <laughs> yes. There you go. This, this is a potential positive. But there are positives as well. And so being able to connect with people, being able to communicate in a secure manner, in a private manner, has allowed people in Ukraine to continue to communicate, um, has allowed us, and certainly has allowed the Fight for 15 to help organize and get people that in theory have nothing in common. But you know what they have in common? They think it's unjust that people are making below $15 an hour. It's, it's harder to bury unjustness or oppression when you have such, the faculties of communication have increased so substantially. This was the promise of the internet. We're not quite there yet, but uh, hopefully over time, we will see its true promise and uh, it will be a force for good. Right now on balance, it seems to be not a force for good. Have you given any thought how this applies to Web3 or the metaverse and decentralization of organizations, which is a hot topic for me on this podcast? I will tell you, whenever I get shown a startup, I'm a very active angel investor. And they say, oh, we're Web3. I'm like, delete. I can't, <laughs> I can't reach for the delete key fast enough. Look, I'm not saying I think it's ridiculous. And I'm not saying the metaverse may not come to be. And I'm not saying that through funds I'm invested in and some other companies, I don't have some exposure to it. <laughs> I'm saying I don't understand it well enough to thoughtfully speak about it. And I certainly don't understand it well enough to allocate capital. If Union Square Ventures, where I'm a limit, where I'm an LP investor, if they, who they are the smartest people, they're the smartest people in the room, whatever room they walk into, if they want to make investments in that space with money I allocate to them, then I, I'm all for it. I don't understand it well enough. So I, 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 if I had to bet, I would bet this is much ado about nothing. That's my bet. All right. Well, you heard it here first on TMT time with Jeff Wald. All right. One last question or last set of questions. I'm in the service industry. Many of our listeners are in the service industry. We are facing uh, pent up demand. We have 
over demand, demand outstrips supply of the service workers right now in my industry. Why sure. do you think that is? Is that going to be fixed here in the short term? What are some ways for technology to help that? Or do you think the service industry has lagged so far behind in its usage and implementation of the new technologies that it's, it is going to take a long time to catch up? So there are a lot of things to unpack there. Um, the, the first is, you know, in the first few industrial revolutions, they were very focused on manufacturing processes. And the service industry didn't really see anything. And I shouldn't say anything, right? There were certainly some changes, certainly with computerization. We saw a lot of productivity increases, but not really job losses. The job losses were focused on manufacturing lines. That's the easiest thing for everyone to understand and envision is, you know, you don't have 50,000 people in a plant in Detroit that are putting together a car. You've got a lot of machines putting together cars. Okay. The thing about AI is by, and so let's spend another second though on a predicate here. What generally happens is things that are repetitive high volume processes, somebody on a manufacturing line turning a wrench. He's turning the same wrench, the same direction on the same part of the car over and over again. Those things almost always in history of work, the almost always is depending on customer service interactions and a host of other things, those things almost always get automated and the job, at least part of that job goes away because maybe there were other things that person did besides just turn the wrench. But the turning of the wrench gets automated because it's a repetitive high volume process. Services tend to not have repetitive high volume processes, right? Your interaction with one client is very different than your interaction with the other client. You can't automate that process. But AI allows us over mass data sets to see where there are repetitive high volume processes buried within. And so in the legal field, maybe that's document review, maybe it's discovery, maybe it's a host of other things that, or we've already seen a host of uh, innovative technologies and maybe those things will eventually completely go away and they're just entirely done by machine. Now, in most industries, what you see when there's that type of automation and the removal of the repetitive high volume process is the repetitive high volume process was a small part of the job. And so it allows the worker to focus on the higher value added things. How and it to, ends up- How to turn it better, right? What, yeah. How to change, how to change the process. And it ends up meaning jobs get created. And my favorite example here are bank tellers. We talk about this a bunch in the book. When the ATM came out, and Evan, the ATM wasn't hiding what it was trying to be. I mean, the initials stand for automated teller machine. machine. Yeah. It was a machine automating the job of the teller. Yeah. No mystery there. Here's what's super informative about this, because the bank teller is a service job. So the ATM was invented on, first came into a, a bank on September 2nd, 1969, in Rockville Center, New York, Citibank. It wasn't until 1995, 25 years later, that the ATM appeared in every single bank branch in the United States. It took 25 years for the technology to propagate which is something super important when you think about autonomous vehicles and how they may impact professional drivers or some other example. It takes a long time for this technology to propagate, but eventually it does. There were 500,000 bank tellers in the United States in 1995 when the ATM now was everywhere. 
What do you think everyone predicted about bank teller employment in the United States at that time? Sure, that they all would be gone. Oh my gosh, there are going to be no more bank tellers. What are we going to do with the bank tellers? We got to retrain the bank tellers. There are today 600,000 bank tellers employed in the United States of America. They're and doing something he, else, right? here's what's interesting, right? Now they're asking you, how's your day? They're giving you a lollipop. They're asking if you want to talk to an investment professional about maybe an investment product or a mortgage product or a car loan. They're coming out from behind the bulletproof glass and they've got iPads and there is more customer service interaction. And so, and importantly, there are more bank branches today than there were in 1995. There's general economic growth. And so the number of bank tellers per branch did decline. It went from 21 down to 13. But because of banking deregulation, the Glass-Steagall Act and its, its repeal, banks all of a sudden compete more. Now we have a bank branch on every creek and corner. So the number of bank branches nearly doubled. That's why we end up 500,000 to 600,000 bank tellers. The point of the story in this service industry example is that any simple conclusion belays the mass complexity that goes into labor resource planning. It wasn't, oh, the ATM exists, therefore bank teller jobs are gonna go. It's what is the competitive environment? What are the shoulder technologies? What are the other things the bank teller can do and should do? What is the regulatory environment? Because the biggest impact on teller employment was general banking regulation in the United States, not something that had to do with, do I wanna walk in and get a lollipop at Chase or just have a bank of ATMs at Citibank? And so it's something super, super, super important to think about because manufacturing, to kind of try to land this plane, manufacturing had the first impacts of the industrial revolutions, but services will be impacted. And I'm sure you've seen all kinds of technologies in the legal field try to kind of penetrate. But the big story in the labor markets today around the shortages of labor that you talked about have nothing to do with automation. They have to do with two simple factors, early retirements and immigration. So the pandemic, either because of health concerns, because of a focus on you know, a better quality of life or what's more important in life, um, or because the stock market absolutely skyrocketed, uh, led a lot of people, 3 million to be precise, that would not have retired in a steady state to retire and get out of the labor market. So they exit the labor force. Yeah. Which creates an artificial and, shortage. And, and so we have a shortage because- Plant that, wouldn't it? So two things normally supplant it. One is just people graduating from school and entering the labor force, but we've had a lot of delays in that because of school closures and a host of other things. And again, health concerns and concerns for family and all the other things. Because normally the number of retirees is basically balanced out by new people coming in. And the net increase in the labor force is driven by the other factor because we have 5 million missing workers. 3 million of them are retirees. Again, we're talking broad, painting with a broad brush here. 2 million are immigrants that haven't come. And whether it's because of the previous administration's policies or the impression that it gave immigrants that they weren't wanted here because of the previous uh, administration, um, or more importantly, it's COVID related, but we normally add about a million net workers through visa programs and all the other things 
And we simply have not added those net million workers over the last two years. And that has led to 5 million workers short of where we should be. So the US economy from a production standpoint is well north of where we were when the pandemic started, but the labor force is still about 5 million workers short. And that is mostly impacting the service industry. So let's extend this to remote work. We sure. Here at, in, in the law firm space, there's a lot of time uh, spent and, and brain cells spent on losing culture. How are we gonna integrate remote work? Well, what's the future of people's work-life balance in and out, in the office, out of the office? What does the data say, or what are you seeing in the trends on what's going to happen there uh, in terms of where, where the workforce is going to be? So I will give this predicate because of the way you framed the question that I have not studied the law industry as deeply as I've studied others. And that's a very important point because every industry has its own nuances and reasons why what's applicable for consultants may not be applicable for lawyers. So that's a good caveat. I appreciate that. It's super, super important, right? Like you can't paint with a broad brush. I appreciate I just did that (laughs) with our labor force and 5 million workers, but you have to study the actual industry and all the dynamics. That said, broadly in the United States, 3% of the U.S. workforce worked remotely pre-pandemic, and definitions are super important here. Remote work means more than 50% of the time you are not in that office. Now, that's super important for two reasons. One, it's a tax nexus issue, right? If you're going to that office, you have a tax presence in that office. If you don't, you don't. And 50% is the hard cutoff there. But more importantly, if you have tax nexus, that means on your payroll data, We have a home address and a work address, and we have to draw a distinction between the two. If you are classified as a remote worker, you only have one address. And this is super important, Evan, because if you go to the office two days a week, you are considered a remote worker and you only have one address. If you go three days, you are considered a full-time employee at that location. And the two days you take, we can't track it. They have no way of knowing. Right, Our friends at ADP know who's a remote worker. So all of that said, we went from 3% work, remote workforce up to 40% in April of 2020. March was the adjustment period. April of 2020, we were at 40% of the US workforce working remotely. The natural limit is 42. That's it. What do you mean by natural limit? Meaning there are 58% of jobs that can't be Can done be. remotely. Got it. Right? And it's always interesting because people say, oh, what's the future of work? It's remote. And I say, well, keep in mind, you're already talking about a minority of the workforce, a very large minority, but 58% of people are in manufacturing and transportation and logistics and supply chain and blah, and blah, and blah, and things that have to be done on site, construction, whatever. And so it in 42%, by the way, is the largest of any economy on the planet. We have a more capably remote workforce than anybody else, any major economy. Because of the advent of technology. 100%. Yeah, and access to high speed broadband, et cetera. And the flexibility of US labor laws as compared to other developed nations. And so, all of my data, by the way, again, out of the predicate here, comes from the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. And so, these are the major industrial countries in the world that are a part of the OECD. And so, we got to 40%. And then the magic question became, when this is over, 
God willing, to your point earlier, we are, we are at the tail ends of it. What will it look like? And here's the thing. People are a social animal. We mostly don't want to be isolated from our coworkers, our colleagues, our friends, right? We want to be in the office. We just don't want to be there nine to five, five days a week. We want to be there on our own schedule. And so the byword that has come is hybrid work or flexible work. What the data tells us is that the US workforce will settle out at about 8% remote work. But again, remember remote work means more than 50% of the time you're not in the office. And flexible work where maybe you're in the office three days, maybe you're in the office four days, maybe you're in the office you know, two weeks on and one week off. But either way, more than 50%. Flexible work might get upwards to 30% of the labor force, right? Inclusive of the eight. So another 22%, which is to say, not many people are going to be going nine to five, five days a week anymore. There'll still be some. Not many no people question. of the ones that had to, so of the 42% right. natural. Of the 42%. Limit, yeah. You're talking, yeah. So 30. And so your numbers, when you say 30%, that's 30% of the overall work of the overall labor market. Yes. So 75% of remote workers, workers will be people that could will have some sort of flexible work or remote work arrangement. Right. Which is a high number. It's a very high number. It's a very high number. Look, some firms have gone entirely virtual Spotify and Shopify and a few other tech firms there. We're done with offices. We're all virtual. I think that's crazy. Some firms have said, we're in the office nine to five, five days a week. I think that's crazy. I think you are going to lose in the war for talent on the one saying nine to five, five days a week. And I think you're going to get more turnover and burnout and a suboptimal work environment for the people going entirely virtual. As always, the answer is kind of in the middle. At a medium that pace. middle, Yeah, you know, that middle, that nice meaty middle, that meaty middle says, you have to have conversations with your workers in some industries it works well and some job functions it works well. But I will tell you law firms and for the minimal study I did on law firms, law firms were obviously very reluctant to go remote in any way, shape or form. I remember in researching the book, having a conversation with the CHRO and at one of the major law firms in the United States. And she said, absolutely not. We will never go remote in no way, shape or form, absolutely. And then, you know, she kind of said, I'd like to, I am losing out on huge pools of talent, people that can't be here nine to five, five days a week, obviously to be a lawyer at a big firm, uh, more than nine to five, they just yeah, can't, they've got other responsibilities, but they would be great assets to the firm and I'm, I can't access those labor pools. And I touched base with her as the pandemic was breaking and then through the pandemic uh, and a few other CHROs at large law firms. And I gotta tell you, they were pretty psyched to be able to break that bone, to be able to say, well, do you see people can be productive? Not everybody, not in all functions, but it's going to be okay. And so what is super exciting to them, especially in this tight labor market that you correctly identify is the pools of workers that they now can access the stay-at-home mom being the proverbial example of that, uh, the MBA mom or the you know law school mom, she can't do the 50, 60 hours in the office, but she can do 30 or 40 hours of 
amazing work that's probably just as good, quite frankly, as the 50, 60, because we all know we goof off a lot and whatever. What? And so, yeah, no, I don't yeah. I'm sorry to break. That's yeah. other breaking news here on TNT. Yeah. People goof off in the office. So where we'll all settle out is highly dependent on job function, highly dependent on industry, highly dependent sometimes on company, but companies that force either end of the spectrum are going to lose out. All right. I, I agree with you. And I'm fortunate our firm uh, is in the, in the meaty middle, as you called it. Uh, and so I like the flexibility of being there when I need to be there, not being there when I don't. Um, all right. Before we sign off, Jeff, at the end of every podcast, I like to ask what people do for fun outside of work. Since you're quasi retired at the moment on the basis of your non-compete, I hope you have lots of fun and have a ton of exciting things to tell me that you are doing while you're not working. Well, I will tell you this. Uh, I discovered in my, uh, my home down here in Florida, a wonderful arcade and I've been playing an inordinate amount of skee-ball. Oh, that's, oh yeah, like old school bowling. Like you play oh, golf yeah. and stuff. Oh yeah, they've got, they've got the skee-ball. They actually, it's called a pinball museum is then the official name of the place down here in Delray, Florida. And um, yeah, I was there until about one in the morning last night with my niece. Are, are you hustling the kids? What are you doing? You know, I thought I would hustle them and then they started throwing and they were much better than me. So I quickly said, oh, we're all learning together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I moved away from my hustle because uh, my hustle wasn't going to work. But uh, I did beat them as Street Fighter and Miss Pac-Man and, and foosball and air hockey. And so there's a tremendous amount of time going on at that arcade. Way too much for someone my age because yeah. I have been there without my nieces and nephews. Love Street Fighter. Yeah, that sounds like a place I could, I could hang out at. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. I know you spent a lot of time with us. I really appreciate it. Best of luck on your future endeavors and whether your predictions uh, play out here. I am super grateful for the time. It was super fun. Thank you for having me.